0: Wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: Ventrons need us. They need their habitat. Uh, We need to learn more about them before they become extinct, for goodness sakes.
0: What can they teach us? So our very first carnivore that we can find in the fossil record is basically, looks like a binturong slash civet. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: And this is the bear cat. Vinturong. Vinturong, yes, yes, yes. This one has been highly requested. Finally getting to it, though. (laughs) It's only been a couple years.
1: Well, Chris, I think ever since we had Rick Schwartz from the San Diego Zoo on here to interview him, and he said it was his favorite creature, and he's seen it all, worked with it all, Mm -hmm. uh, continues to to work with just uh, an assortment of wonderful creatures. So that made me really curious because... With all my zoo background, I have never worked with a binturong. I've never even seen one. Mm-hmm. I've definitely never smelled one, which we'll talk about on the podcast today. Their unique smell. It's actually a very positive smell. Uh, it's uh, one of our favorite foods when we mm-hmm, go to the mm-hmm, movie theaters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I feel like I haven't lived and I've been wanting to cover the binturong ever since.
0: It's it's a very unique creature. It is funny you bring up San Diego Zoo. So shout out to them and and Rick, you know, obviously my hometown zoo. It, they describe it as something Dr. Seuss cooked up. It is <laughs> yeah. It is very unique. It's a very unique carnivore. It's got some very interesting physiology. It's history. Is it a
1: bear? Is it, is it a yeah. cat? Is it a monkey? What is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. What is it?
0: it? It is a lot of fun stuff with the species today and, and just just a fun one to, to cover and talk about, uh, you know, and its conservation story is is sad. I mean, there's, it's massive decline in population, which we'll get to. But, you know, Southeast Asia, a lot of deforestation and loss of habitat has really, really hammered uh, this 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 animal.
1: Oh, yes, Chris, though, the IUCN uh, declares the benturongs as vulnerable, but most likely endangered in large parts of their range, and their populations are declining with an estimated number of 30% or more decline since the mid-1980s. Yeah, yeah. So, And we're going to talk a lot about their evolution and their taxonomy today, because that's usually Chris's baby, and I'll let him dork out about that, but... (laughs) They're, they're really unique. I mean, they're one of only two carnivore, the Benchurongs are only one of two carnivore species that have a prehensile tail, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like a monkey, right? Yep. Yep. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of fun facts today. So hopefully you'll stick around and enjoy the Benchurong as much as, as much as Chris and I do. And for all of our zookeeper friends out there, if you've smelled a Benchurong, send us a message. Yes. yes, (laughs) I'm super jealous.
0: Well, it's interesting, Angie, because there, there's not that many in zoos, in AZA zoos in the United States. They estimate only 14, and then only 11 in other zoos throughout the world. You know, so.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense because I was shocked. That my husband John, who's like Mr. Zuby, mm-hmm. uh, who's worked at several different zoos, been around the zoo block and back, if you will, and he had never worked with them and wasn't too familiar uh, with them. He had never smelled one. That's yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that was our conversation at dinner uh. tonight, yeah. and so and I was like, "Wow, that's okay." That, uh, but as you mentioned, they're pretty rare mm-hmm. uh, under human care, and, and of course, rare in the wild.
0: Well, I'll give a shout out to Zoo Atlanta. My sister, where so my sister lives, and uh, when when hopefully when I get back to the states and the borders are opening up finally, you know I can get to Zoo Atlanta. I know we have some some friends of the podcast that work there, and
1: you and I make, can go live. Yes. I can meet you in, I can meet you yes. in Atlanta in a heartbeat.
0: going I say, Tuesday. bring the boys up. Yeah, you know, we'll go see my sister mm-hmm. and whatever movie she's working on at the time, and then we'll go to the Zoo Atlanta and and go see the their binturongs. They got them a, a couple years ago, I think a breeding pair. So. Uh, amazing creature now let's describe it because bear cat what i mean i know what it is because i've done the evolution <laughs> in the natural history
1: but even describing it what is this thing one word darling Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. If you're not driving, you have to go to Google image and pull up a picture of a Ben Drong because I'm not going to do them justice. But if you're driving and you like to have a Dr. Seuss type imagination, then just bear with me. Um, for the Ben Chirong, basically their body is thick and heavy, but mm-hmm. long with short yet stout legs. And for their fur, it's going to be very, very thick. And typically in color, it's a dark black uh, or dark, dark brown hair with white or silver or even rust color on their hair tips. So with this white hair tip, it gives them almost a roan or grizzled appearance uh, throughout parts of their body. But the bentrong's face is typically lighter and has more of this grizzled or roan appearance uh, than the rest of its body. And their nose or their muzzle is darling. It's short and pointed. Uh, it reminds me almost of, I don't know, somewhere between a fox and a possum mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Their nose is slightly turned up. And then the binturong has these long, wiry, Definitely Dr. Seuss like whiskers yes, yes, that are yes, white. Yes. They give them like an old man. That with the like the the grizzled or the gray effect of their hair, they kind of look like old, like a a cute old man, not a grumpy old man. No, no. The the whiskers are they're intense <laughs> and they're thick. <laughs> they're so cute. They are.
0: They are straight out of a Dr. Seuss yeah, novel. Yeah,
1: but their eyes are gorgeous. They're big and prominent and uh black or dark brown in color. And then above their eyebrows, they have some whitish hair. It almost looks like eyebrows, if you will. Mm -hmm. And their ears are cute little round mouse ears uh, with a white trim around the top of the ear. So they really, like, stand out. But what's really striking with their ears is they have these ridiculously long black tufts Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. are just so cute. You have to sometimes zoom in the picture to see it because it will blend in with their, their coat color. But if you can find a picture of these ear tufts. It's uh, it's yeah, straight out of Dr. Seuss, super cute. And lastly, I mentioned the tail in the opening of the podcast, but venturongs have a stunning, thick and bushy prehensile tail that we'll talk a lot about when we get to physiology and what they do with it and why it's so important. But it's long and it kind of curls upwards at the tip, but it's just really thick and, and puffy and darling and massive. The tail can be almost as long as their body.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they are. And, and looking at them from a wide angle, I thought wolverine, you know, just the bodies.
1: Sure. Okay. I, I can see that with the, with the stout legs. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's kind of what I thought. But wolverines are a little bit shorter. So the body length of a binturon can get up to three feet or 90 centimeters. So two to three feet, 60 to 90 centimeters is body length. Uh, The tail, like Angie said, is up to 30 inches or or over 80 centimeters. Wolverines are a little bit more stout because binturongs weigh 20 to 45 pounds or up to 20 kilograms. And wolverines can get up to 60 pounds, you know, or what is that, like 25, 30 kilograms. So they're a little bit, wolverines are a little bit more stout. Obviously, wolverines are mustelids. We're going to find out where binturongs fit in the evolutionary tree. And I would say binturongs probably are not vicious like a wolverine. You just you think of wolverines and you're like, oh, you know, they're amazing, but they're mustelid, so they're a little, they a little attitude. Now, what else is interesting, Angie? Before we jump to range, is the female binturongs are larger than the males?
1: Yes, and we don't see that very often. Uh, no, with mammals. No,
0: and we just covered a species that the females were bigger, right? the one we just, the one we just
1: covered two weeks ago. Oh, you're trying to stump me in my mind brain. It's been uh, a busy week. <laughs> it's been a busy couple of weeks with finals. I can't do it. Uh, can't blue, do it. Uh, or, hold on. It was the whale? Humpback whale, yeah. humpback whale, yeah. Humpback whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, humpback, humpback whale. whale. <laughs>
0: yeah, remember the females are larger than the males just a little bit? I was like, what?
1: You, Which you is in humpback scale, that's a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because
1: yeah, they're already so massive.
0: If you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to humpback whales. They are just oh, magical.
1: Magical animals. All of no, them are. The, the music, I listen to it at night when I sleep.
0: Yeah, they're all amazing. Now, the range of the Binturong is Southeast Asia. And I think we're going to spend a couple weeks here because the the next species we're covering is, is from this neck of the woods. A lot going on in Southeast Asia. We're going to talk a little bit about it today. Uh, You know, obviously a lot of conservation concerns, a lot of amazing species. You know, we did the Sumatran rhino. Uh, We're going to do Indian elephants here or Asian elephants uh, here pretty soon. Uh, Just a lot of species in peril here in this part of the world. And the Binturong is no exception. So you're looking at the very eastern portions of India, Bhutan, the southern portions of China, going down through Myanmar, Myanmar, uh, Thailand, Laos, a little bit of Vietnam, Cambodia, and then the islands of Malaysia. These are and all Indonesia. places
1: where I'm dying to go. I, I know not been in these places. <laughs> I hope we have some podcast friends there in Southeast Asia that will house us and show yes. us around.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Pip's dying to get me to Thailand, so there's. I, I have a whole bucket list, and Jesse, like with the birds, there a whole bucket oh, list of I animals. Bet. Oh my
1: goodness, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, and you know, and then Indonesia and the Philippines, you sure. know, like yeah. just oh, Sumatra, and I want to go see Komodo dragons, you know, possibly. So
1: yes, and you'll need to take Zach. Zachary is super into Komodo dragons, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: They're amazing. They're amazing. So that, that's where the binturongs live. I mean, these, these tropical forests, dense canopies, that's where they want to be. Angie's gonna talk about, you know, their their daily habits, you know, their, their their tree living species. So when you look at that part of the world, you know, this deforestation that's going on, I'm gonna talk about here in a minute. Has really, really devastated a lot of species, orangutans, and binturongs, right? And the funny thing is, Angie, when you you look at this animal, it, it's so obscure it it's it's one people don't know a lot of, but they no, call I them mean, a, a Chris, keystone like species. I, yeah,
1: I know, Chris. I just learned about binturongs a couple years ago after interviewing Rich Short. So, mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, if, yeah, if a zookeeper doesn't know about it. Well, you, you say
0: that. You're right. We don't know a lot about them. This is a keystone species within their ecosystem. This is a key animal. You know, they they have some very critical ecological roles in these, in these tropical forests.
1: Absolutely, Chris. In fact, I just uh, found an article a little bit ago earlier today called Short-Term Movements and Strong Dependencies on Figs of binturongs mm-hmm. in Bornean mm-hmm. Rainforests. Um, and this paper was out of the European Journal of Wildlife Research from 2018, so pretty recent. And so the researchers in this paper uh, put radio collars on three binturongs and observed them and their movements for a long time and recorded all sorts of different facts, just trying to get more information on general because the reoccurring theme throughout this podcast as I'm going into some of their behavior and definitely their reproduction uh, and conservation for that matter, their exact numbers, there's still a lot about binturongs we don't know because of where they live, um, that they are in the canopy. Uh, so I was super happy to find that there are researchers out there fighting for them, wanting to learn more about them. And the results of this paper found that movements of the binturong were strongly affected by how their food was distributed, especially fig trees. So, a quick sidebar: is Chris opened up the podcast talking about how binturongs are carnivores, and they are, and they eat their—they definitely eat meat, but they probably more technically fall into an omnivore category because they they will eat fruit as well, uh, especially fig. So, depending on these fruit trees, these figs throughout the canopy. It really influences the movement of Venturongs. And the researchers think that their data suggests that the Venturongs remember the location and the timing of when these fig trees fruit. And so that way they can come back there and continue to get nutrition and grow and be healthy and reproduce. So without this dense canopy and without these wild fig trees, uh, it's it would be devastating to binturongs and their movement
0: well in uh, you know the one thing that they're really key in is the strangler fig so talking about that is they're the only known seed dispersers of this tree and that they scientists believe that the binturong has digestive enzymes that help soften its seed coat
1: yeah, they they actually help break that that uh, the outer the outer shell the hull, if you will, uh, they break it down so the actual seed that can germinate is available when it hits the ground in the feces. And Chris, in this study alone, the researchers found or recorded um, thirteen different fig ficus species and four non-fig species where the bentorong spent most of their time uh, eating. Yeah.
0: Think about it. I mean, that is. That's a lot of
1: species. Of yeah. Trees.
0: And with their numbers down, that means less fig trees growing. That means less fruit for other animals, fruit bats, all these other species that depend on them. It, 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 it's That's why the, these food webs are just so intricate and so critical to maintain. And when you start taking out a key species like a binturong, it could collapse the whole system. You know, And there's a lot of probably competition for food. It goes back to, I always remember this, hearing this. And, and there's still a little controversy with this as far as there's no scientific consensus. But the dodo bird, when it went extinct in the Mauritius Islands, there's the dodo tree. And when the dodo bird went extinct, they thought this tree was going extinct. And these trees live for hundreds and hundreds of years. And scientists believe that the dodo bird was critical to seed dispersal and digesting these seeds and putting them around. So they've seen a drop in a plant species that was directly linked to a species, to an animal species. So just like here with the, the, the binturongs and the strangler fig, binturongs go away, strangler figs are going to go away, what other species are going to go away? So that's where we're finding ourselves in this crisis that, you know, these animals are so important.
1: Absolutely, Chris. I think the take-home message is that Binturong poop is powerful. It's awesome. And the canopies that they live in in Southeast Asia need it. And then to build off of that, because they are carnivore as well, uh, they do catch and eat rodents. So that is an important thing to help reduce those numbers um, and make sure that that population doesn't take off.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it, what's really hurting Binturongs is habitat loss to, to logging and agriculture development and especially the palm oil industry. So I know we've talked about palm oil and I wanted to kind of shed a different light and actually give some good news on what's going on out there. Uh, since we started talking about this a couple of years ago, you know, there's been some positive change and movement, we think, you know, still some skepticism with with some activists and and scientists with it, but you know, palm oil is critical to our global food chain right now. It, it's it's absolutely massive. It is actually the world's most popular vegetable oil. Over thirty percent of our food is related to to palm oil now, and. Binturong Habitat in Indonesia and Malaysia is threatened with palm oil. Indonesia and Malaysia are actually the, the two largest palm oil producers in the world. They produce over 85% of the world's palm oil. And the demand for palm oil is only increasing. Prices actually last year set an all-time record high of close to $1,500 U.S. Dollars per ton. And they're predict- predicted to climb to almost two thousand U.S. dollars per metric ton. So the demand is only increasing because palm oil—it's cheaper to produce, and it's actually here's here's the thing, Angie. This is where it's like, uh, we need we need some some wine to sit down and like have these discussions because when you look at producing one metric ton of palm oil. The fingerprint or the amount of land needed is much less than other vegetable oils. Okay. So, to produce one metric ton of palm oil, you only need 0.26 hectares. Soybean oil, you need two hectares to produce one metric ton.
1: A lot more. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, a lot more. Then, sunflower oil.
1: Olive oil, where does that fall?
0: So olive oil is 2.9 hectares. Coconut oil, 3.9 hectares. Oh, boy. So, you know, looking at palm oil, it is a little bit more sustainable. Mm-hmm. The problem with palm oil is the the massive amount of deforestation that's gone into Indonesia and Malaysia to... Produce this palm oil. So just in from 1997 to 2007 in Indonesia, over 1 million acres or 1,500 square miles were just leveled for palm oil plantations. So it's a critical source. I mean, like I said, over 30% of the vegetable oils in the world is palm oil. It's in 50% of all of our food products, processed foods have palm oil in them. 70% of all makeup has palm oil in it. So it's like we can't get away from it. But the good news is at least in Indonesia, Malaysia and Papua New Guinea, deforestation has slowed and slowed dramatically. So the pressure from consumers is pushing companies to adopt these NDPE policies, which is no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation. So peat moss or peat uh, is very, very important to maintaining ecosystems. So, you know, we, we we know that. So they're trying to maintain those, those peat bogs and everything around the world. But because of consumer pressure, a lot of these companies now feel like they have to Buy sustainable products. Sustainable yes, palm oil. Keep the
1: pressure going. Vote with your dollar. Vote with your dollar. Yes, we're making
0: it. a difference. So that's where yes, this is like yes, yay. Has, has got me really excited. So the deforestation
1: pressure—it's <laughs> good. Yes, well, it, keep so, the pressure up.
0: So the data is in 2020. So only two years ago, seven of the top ten deforesting companies were definitely connected to consumer brands with NDPE policies. In Indonesia and Malaysia. So these are companies cutting down prime real estate for orangutans, binturongs, and others. In 2021, this was zero. It went to zero. So these companies that have adopted these policies have now demanded that they only buy palm oil from uh, certified uh, suppliers, Mm-hmm. And the top 10 deforesters in 2021 for Indonesia and Malaysia were supplying to non-NDPE markets. And they they were reading the, the report. These were smaller concessions that had bought forests years and years ago. They were already planning to cut them down. But these companies that have these policies will not buy from them. Right, it's okay, only ones right. that are mm-hmm. existing. So NDP policies. I mean, Pepsi, Procter and Gamble, uh, Ferraro, uh, Johnson and Johnson, Mars, Kellogg, uh, L'Oreal. Uh, those are just some of the companies. Which that one have is this.
1: Hershey's?
0: Hershey's is Hershey's, and they're they have NDP it, policy.
1: Yeah. It's a good, good one, right? Yes, yeah, because yeah. I just I just uh, pounded about uh, ten Hershey's <laughs> Easter eggs before I started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Zachary, there from your basket, buddy. Uh, <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> what you don't know, hopefully, won't hurt you uh... until you're listening to this podcast. But he likes; to, he's a good sharer, So, yeah, yeah. and I just needed a little, a little pick, pick me up, me up
0: a little pick And me up.
1: but I wanted it to be sustainable palm yeah. oil, so. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, and and the good news is is with even with palm oil prices skyrocketing, deforestation has gone down. So some of the some of the activists think you know COVID might have played a role in that, but it, there's a lot of stuff going on with palm oil right now, because just now while we're recording this in April of 2022, Indonesia is actually banning exports of palm oil. So right now the world is 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 in chaos with the stuff that's going on in the Ukraine that they produce a lot of sunflower oil. So Indonesia due to inflation is not exporting any palm oil right now. So I don't know what that's going to do, what it, what it, what it is doing. And, and this is where the concern is when we covered basilisks a few weeks ago, talking about the, deforestation that's going on in Latin America, especially Central America, we're starting to see palm oil plantations pop up there. So in Brazil, which we're going to have to go very soon here in the next couple of months, and and really Brazil is still bulldozing the Amazon rainforest at, unpre- at an unprecedented rate. It has not slowed down. There has to be some political change there. It's, it's, it's very, very alarming. But right now, Brazil Biofuels is working to expand palm oil plantations in Brazil. And they want to take out another 120,000 hectares uh, by 2026. Okay, so there's good news in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, but now we're seeing other parts of the world take advantage and say, okay, palm oil is in demand. We're going to go bulldoze some more rainforest and plant them. Now, just to leave you with something, I if you if you really care about this, and everybody should, and I know we've we've pushed. Just the, read uh,
1: the back of your labels, right? Yeah.
0: Well, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, and then the app. app.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: in the United States, there's one in Australia. Uh, you can go to the World Wildlife Fund, and this was their palm oil report card in 2021. You can go to palmoilscorecard dot panda.org and i'll try to put the link in the show notes you can go and look at the company scorecard and i know i've talked about this a couple years ago but again it's in flux and there are some companies at the bottom of the list that i refuse to uh, buy anything from or go into their stores i was angie one i won't list them you can go look um, look on there and look at some of the ones on the bottom that you may May have gone to, but I'm avoiding their products at all costs. But some of the ones that are that are very at the top, Co-op Switzerland is at the top. They have the top scorecard. John Lewis partnership out of the UK, Ferrero, right? So the chocolates these are the good ones, right? Yeah, these are the good ones. IKEA, Mars Inc. Uh, that's the one. Mars bars, the the chocolate Hershey's. producers. Hershey's is on there. <laughs> They're very good. Uh, Estee Lauder is very good for makeup. So those are just some of the top ones that 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 are on there. But I I really you know push our listeners to to look at the list, go to the bottom, look at these companies that don't report because there's companies that refuse to report, uh, but look at some of the ones on the bottom that that have some work to do and let them know. Say I'm not. I'm not going into your stores. I'm not buying your food. I'm not doing this until.
1: Absolutely. If you're on social media, like with Twitter Mm -hmm. or Instagram, uh, I mean, companies are listening to feedback.
0: Oh, yeah. It's obvious. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. These policies, these companies are adopting, is because consumers are demanding it. You know? So we're talking about activism. Last week, you had an author that does books for children.
1: Yes, Sarah Woodard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, great interview. Really inspirational.
0: Yeah. So this is how we make change. This is how we as a collective can demand better because I think after this, this pandemic is winding down, the next big thing we need to tackle is climate change. We have to, and the environment. So to save this beautiful binturong, this, this amazing species.
1: need us. They need their habitat. Uh, we need to learn more about them before they become extinct for goodness sakes.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. I will step off my soapbox and talk about uh, it's evolution. A
1: it's an important soapbox. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think palm oil is, and trying to explain it more uh, is helpful.
1: And feeling like us consumers can make a difference you don't don't necessarily have to be out uh in indonesia doing research or in the philippines which would be super cool and awesome and i'm going to highlight a group today that is doing that but in the same instance there's things that you can do at home through just a little bit of self-education
0: yeah and it's making a difference we are making a difference so pat yourselves on the back
1: that's right it takes courage for sure conservation heroes one purchase at a time yes absolutely
0: absolutely all right, evolution's interesting because the binturong is an ancient species, you know, orders carnivores. So there's about oh, close to 280 species in, in that order. Now, this bear cat, the suborder is feliformia, So it's more cat than bear. <laughs> so it's the cat-like <laughs> carnivores where we have 114 species. Now, the family is viviridae. This is the first time we've covered anybody from them. And very interesting. 33 species. What I love about this family is this is the most primitive filiform. So out of all the cats Mm -hmm. or felid-type animals, I think felid's more cats, but filiforms, these are the most ancient So these are very, very old animals, you know, species-wise, and have not had to evolve much different from their ancestors tens of millions of years ago. Now, the vivarids occur all over. They're in Southeast Asia, uh, other parts of Asia, Europe, Southern Europe, and Africa. So generally, a lot of them are the civets and genets. So I could see us doing a civet within the year. I because, love it, yes. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. pretty cool. They're pretty cool. Now, the subfamily is Paradoxurinae, six species. So it's the palm civets and the Binturong. And then the Binturong genus is Ar- Arctictus, means bear weasel. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And the species name is Arctictus Binturong. Now to break this down even more, there is nine subspecies of binturong.
1: Right that that blew my mind. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess because of their large range yes. and the islands that they are, the different yeah, islands that they're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: exactly why. Exactly why you see. But a But so lot. when we
1: think about a from a conservation being them being vulnerable, or perhaps different subspecies being endangered, I mean that really that really thins out whatever numbers there are left. All those different subspecies thin that out even more.
0: Yeah. Yep. 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 And a lot of them are divided out on the islands in the Philippines, Borneo, but then you have a subspecies in Thailand, a subspecies in Bhutan, a subspecies in China, you know, the subspecies in Sumatra and Java. So, you know, obviously as, as over time, they have all differentiated a little bit and genetically been able to do that. Now, what I love about the Binturong is we always say myocids, every carnivore. Oh, we well, go back to the myocids. 55, 60 million years ago, the myocid was basically a civet or Binturong looking like animal. So our very first carnivore that we can find in the fossil record is basically, looks like a Binturong slash civet with these tails and... All of that. So that that's what I love about that is, is about 60 million years ago is when you start to see these animals emerge. Then in the Eocene, about 42 million years ago, is where you get the feliforms the and caniforms. So our canids split out and our felids split out. Taking that further, the palm civets, they say, are some of the most ancient feliforms. So with the binturong, remember, they're the same subfamily. And they emerged about 30 million years ago. So that's when the, the, the ancient ancestor of a binturong uh, emerged that had a prehensile tail, you know, that we're going to talk about, like the, uh, the kinkajou. Now, we don't have exact dates on when this modern binturong emerged, but probably a few million years ago is what they're, what they're saying. So, so very fascinating natural history, thinking about the last 40 million years the binturong has been around.
1: For quite a while, that's, yeah. That's what really stuck with me as I was prepping for this podcast of just how yes, they are a unique and different looking something out of Dr. Seuss—a bear, cat, monkey. What's going on here? But a lot of that is because they are so ancient, yeah, yeah. And just what a what an incredible species by the same rate, so important to what we know about evolution, and and there's still a lot that we don't even know. A, about them so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, i it just i think it's very critical to keep them around yeah uh, they've been they've been around for a long time before we were here messing things up so i'd <laughs> yeah, like to keep yeah. it that way
0: well, it was like it was uh, our interview with Richard Dawkins. God, we, we Angie and I had like a million questions we wanted to ask him, but obviously we had less than an hour with him.
1: I know I, he, when he first opened up uh, and said hello <laughs> to everyone, he's like, He's like, you guys have a lot of questions. I don't know <laughs> if I'll be able to get through all of this.
0: Yeah, he was worried. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, Look, like, we're not going to take up all your time.
1: Oh, uh, I wanted to, I wanted I to, know, but, uh, but but we didn't. But he, he did end up, I think, answering a lot more than maybe he would have if we weren't yeah. such uh animal dorks. And, dorks uh, I know.
0: Yeah. yeah. We, at the end he was laughing with us and he was all excited about the cloning and all that fun stuff. But I wanted to ask him if you could go back at any point in history to observe animals, what point would you want to go and, and, and observe? Because I think about, would it be a dinosaur period where you can be invisible and watch dinosaurs roam around? Or would it be like 20 million years ago when you had some of these insane looking mammals walking around the planet. Like, I I don't know. I don't know. I wanted to ask him that, but obviously didn't get to it. What
1: about for you? What would you pick?
0: Oh, I know Xander would want to be dinosaurs. I mean, it would be really cool just to see dinosaurs walking around. I think they'd be kind of boring. I, I think like 10 million years ago to see some of these super predators, you know, if, if I could just be invisible and they wouldn't know I was there to see Megalodon out in the ocean. And then some of these Massive cats, saber tooth type cats, which is only like 10,000 years ago, but the 10 million years ago when you had the giant uh, rhinos, right? Wasn't it? Walking the plains oh, yeah, of
1: well, Asia. Holy rhinos. And yeah, I yeah. mean, just all sorts of cool creatures. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to watch, go back and see kind of the evolution of the Equidae species, of course. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, Cause, cause the mammal like meso- lover hip- in me would like probably. Yeah, the animal lover and me would probably want to uh, see a little bit more of the mammal evolution, but uh to I don't know, a giant dra- dragonflies sound pretty cool too. <laughs> to see
0: a real T Rex, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or what's the Argentinosaurus? Isn't that the largest? dinosaur?
1: yeah, mm-hmm. Argentinosaurus, uh, Brachiosaurus, all the big ones, Diplodocus. I could go on with it. The giant <laughs> herbivores, because I'd want to see, I'd want to watch them poop. You know <laughs> what I mean? Just be underneath like, is a big fatty. Yeah, yeah, I think like elephants and rhinos and even horses create a lot of feces from yeah. all the plant matter they eat. So I, I still can't wrap my mind around how some of these, these mega gigantosaurus yeah. type species, mm-hmm. the Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, uh, Brachiosaurus, Argentinosaurus. There's more I, and they're slipping my minds now. But I mean, how much? how much...
0: Manure do they produce per day?
1: Manure do they produce and how much do they eat a day? Yeah. Like well,
0: the earth was a lot more there was a lot more oxygen, a lot more plants, a yeah. lot Yeah. A lot of a lot of seed dispersal and then thick, there's something yeah. eating that poop, something regenerating that poop that just yeah. didn't sit there. Like imagine the insects, the uh like
1: how much do you think it'd be? You think it'd be like it'd fill up like a
0: Well, you like watch Jurassic Park. 50- we're we're on a way <laughs> tangent, but remember I the know. Jurassic Park uh, poop pile where she goes in looking for seeds or whatever. Um, Ellie was her name, I think.
1: I know, but do they know if that's really the amount that they would? No, nah, I don't like, know. You would imagine showed? so, yeah,
0: if you just scale it up.
1: Like is it like a 50-gallon a fifty gallon barrel of poop each time? <laughs> Anyways, Pintorong, don't produce yeah. that much. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a Jurassic uh, Park <laughs> so, zookeeper. Yeah, How about that? For for yeah. many reasons, many yeah, 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 reasons, yeah. but uh, the herbivore poop included.
0: I don't think uh, the if you haven't listened to Richard Dawkins' interview, it's very interesting. He does uh, he gets really excited. When we start. Talking I hope about Richard cloning.
1: Dawkins did not just l- listen to that little that little conversation we had. <laughs> yeah, that would be embarrassing.
0: But yeah. we do talk about cloning mammoths. I think we'll see mammoths in our lifetime. I don't think we'll see dinosaurs or any type of dinosaur hybrid even though they've done some cool stuff with changing some genetics, painting genes on chickens with teeth and all that stuff. Anyways, we're on a a, a wide tangent. Binturongs live about 18 years in the wild under human care in their 20s, um, 25 years old. Good swimmers, right? Um, Yes,
1: I found that a fascinating fact, I guess because they're, cat-like, although we know the jaguar and the fishing cats and certain cat species do like to swim.
0: They can run about 15 miles per hour, so not, not too slow. And then just some cool physiology climbing up and down those trees, right? Like their, their semi-retractable claws, this tail I want to talk about. And then what about their ankles?
1: Well, yeah, Chris, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, they are an arboreal species, so they do spend a lot of time in the canopy hanging out. In fact, they rarely come to the ground, but they don't have ability to basically like jump from tree to tree, as of course a lot of primate species do, or even more uh, agile uh, species of cats. So whenever they do want to switch the tree that they are in to another one, they have to go down the down the trunk and then back up. And so each of their four feet have five toes with these strong claws that are semi-retractable. Um, the soles are bare to help with grip. And the third and fourth toes are joined to help give it, them a better grip as they go up and down. And they're excellent climbers. And this is where the cat part really comes in. They do move slow uh and very carefully through the tree branches, but they will they've been recorded walking on top of a branch, which that's Uh, Not shocking, but then they also, um, under from the underside of it as well. And what's super cool about bencherongs is they can actually go down a trunk head first, so they don't have to backpedal. Um, and the way that they do this is their hind feet can base can do basically like a 180 degree rotation in their tarsus or their ankle bone. Uh, so as when they're going down the tree head first their claws can their hind claws can grip and help them go down safely like that which is just really really cool I mean what a fascinating evolutionary fact um to help them help them get down safely because they're they're a heavier mammal I mean they're not mm-hmm. super light no no, and, no. Uh, and so that's how they'll move from tree to tree but when they are on the ground you mentioned Chris, you mentioned the speed that they can walk. But I think it's important to note that benthrongs, they they have an ambling gait, a kind of like a left, right, left, right motion because they're very flat footed. So they, they walk more like bears. So when they're moving in and out of trees, it's like they're like cats. And then when bentrongs are on the ground, they're like a bear. And then as you mentioned not too long ago, their tails.
0: They're mm-hmm. monkey
1: like prehensile tails on a carnivore which they're right they're only one of these two carnivore species that have a prehensile tail so can you guess the other one there's binturongs, and, well, and then they, we
0: said the kinkajou right so yes. the kinkajou which we're gonna have to cover at some point too yeah yeah That's
1: i had no list. idea yeah i, I know yeah
0: no i know and it's like what it has like this leathery patch at the tip that helps it grip, and it just you know all that muscle and i read that but even the young ones can hang by it, but not the older ones because they're too heavy.
1: Yeah. And the and the uh, the tail is so important for their balance, too. So it helps them balance why they're reaching for food, why they're moving up and down trees, why they're holding on, reaching for the special fig that they want to get. And when venturongs are sleeping, they use their tail to wrap it around them to basically have a nice little snuggle session with their own tail. Yeah. It's cute. It's cute, Darling, okay. right?
0: All right. I know we've got some more behavior to cover, and but we've got to talk about this because you've you've brought it up earlier. This smell, what is it? And actually, I'm. <laughs> it's weird. I go back to, if anybody, you know, we go back in our old episodes. It's just certain facts you remember. We've covered like I don't know 160 species by now, 170. And there's always just certain facts that stick out. And the one is the beaver with their anal glands with the vanilla flavoring. And now you have glands that secrete something that smells like what?
1: Popcorn. Buttery, buttery popcorn. Not that skinny pop baloney. No. No, this no. is the kind of popcorn that's naughty that you want to have in, in the movie theater. Yes, yes or corn chips some have described corn chips and so i feel like i'm both a popcorn and corn chip connoisseur so mm-hmm, i need mm-hmm. to get my my nose around in via protective contact uh up into a bench wrong so i can so i can uh judge for myself yeah so rick schwartz <laughs> one of these days I'm coming for you
0: yeah you gotta get to san diego yep now, I know with the adults, it's popcorn, but I did read with the young ones, it, it smells like a skunk. It's really stinky. And it's not when they get older where where it, it's more pleasant to us. But what's the purpose of all this popcorn smell for them?
1: Sure. Well, the scent glands that create this um, delicious smell in adults are not so great in the juveniles is underneath their tail in the anal genital region for both males and females. And they have that big tail, right? And so... The thought behind the smell is that as they drag their tail on the ground, they are leaving behind this scent. And this scent is a way to communicate, uh, most importantly, with other binturongs. And so when you're in this dense canopy of forest and binturongs don't typically live in big family groups or anything like that. They need to find each other for breeding purposes. And then also they need to stay away from other binturongs when it's not breeding season. And so the popcorn smell uh, is a great way to let somebody know this is your territory mm-hmm. or other predators. Because typically adult binturongs don't have a ton of predators, mm-hmm. uh, but they have been known to be hunted by leopards, clouded leopards, even uh, reticulated pythons. And so those species, of course, are probably going to either ignore the buttery smell. I don't think they necessarily actively hunt bencherong. Uh, And therefore, it's going to be more for conspecifics or other binturongs. And of course, because I dabbled with um, a lot of analytical chemistry in my graduate work, uh, I had to look up where is this popcorn smell coming from? And for any chemistry uh, nerds out there like myself, the musk glands under the tail, of the binturong, emit a volatile compound known as 2-acetyl-1-propylene.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yes. Make that
1: for some popcorn. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And since we are talking a little bit about predation, in general, binturongs uh, are going to be shy. But if they are harassed either by humans or, of course, any of these predators, initially they're going to try to flee and amble up a tree as quick as possible for them. If that doesn't work or if they're cornered, they'll often urinate and defecate uh, on the threat if possible. They'll show their teeth. They might snarl. um, And if none of that works, they have been recorded to sometimes balance on their tail and flash their claws at the at the predator. So that visual, I will leave you with because it's uh, I, I I feel bad for any bench wrong that's upset and having to do this behavior, but it, it is um, a, a Doctor Seuss like behavior to see them balancing on their tail with their claws showing and um, and hopefully they never have to feel that way. Uh, but it is a it is was a fascinating behavior I came across in my research.
0: Well, like you, you said earlier, as far as nutrition, uh, you know, they are carnivore, but primarily like you said, omnivore, frugivore eat a lot of these figs, but they do, you, you mentioned the rodents, but you know, birds, insects, other things, uh, eggs, they'll eat carrion. So they'll eat leaves sometimes. So they, they eat, they, they have a wide variety of things that they'll eat.
1: Well, yeah, Kristen. Then I was reading fish, and then that's when it was saying how Bencherongs are great swimmers and they'll dive for their food if need be. Yeah,
0: they're really, they're really cool. They're really like you know, just just like a multi-purpose tool, right? Yeah, like they do it well, all. they've been
1: around for millions of years. They're like, uh, don't worry, I've got this covered. I'll figure yeah. out how to eat. I'll figure out how to eat this. I'll eat that. I'll eat this. I'll remember where this fig tree is. I'll figure out how to catch fish. And they're a living munch?
0: up in the trees.
1: so Yeah, you know, but I'll come down and munch on some rodents. Don't you yeah. worry. We need insects. <laughs> but, you Easy, know, through, through
0: the millions of years, you know, when mm-hmm. we're going back in time to, to, to watch these animals. You know, they've been able to avoid being uh, preyed upon. They've been hanging out around the, the equator where it's warm generally. So a lot of these cooling, you know, ice ages they've been able to survive through. So just a fascinating animal. What are some of the other behaviors we know about them?
1: Well, there's a couple, Chris. Uh, what was really fascinating to me is some of the literature out there classified binturongs as nocturnal. However, some more f- recent studies have said no, no. Uh, we we observe them being active during the day and the night time uh, through camera traps. And a lot of activity around dusk and dawn, so maybe some uh, crepuscular tendencies, but. What this really stuck out to me as a person who researches, however many animals you said we've done in the hundreds, uh, you don't usually see that. Usually, it's like possums, nocturnal. I mean, it's just the answer is clear as day because, well, they've been well researched, and so this just helped shed a little light to me that the jury is still out on a lot of their behavior because they are so secretive and they do live high up in the trees and they spend a lot of time there and they are in these dense jungles and that we just need to learn more about them, uh, to help, to help save them and to, and to understand their behavior and understand how far they move. If they do move seasonally, All this information will help researchers and conservationists as they try to save some of the forest that they're in and understanding how better to do that. So what the researchers do know is they do spend, like we mentioned, a lot of times in their trees and they love to bask in the sun uh, when they can. And because of their long, thick coat, the the shaggy fur, uh, they do spend a lot of time grooming their fur similar to maybe your house cat um or really really any bears and monkeys yeah, they, all, yeah. they all do a lot of grooming yeah, with all that do. fur you have to right yeah, yeah. uh and they will keep those semi-retractable claws sharp uh by scratching them on tree tongues so we see we see that in bears and cat species as well Binturongs aren't super social uh they are typically solitary, which also makes them hard to study and to track. Uh, and that's why the radio, radio caller technique is great because you can just put it on them and then off they go to live their life in the wild. Um, so they, they are reported to be in groups, uh, especially during breeding time. And so when a female is an estrus, she'll attract uh, males towards her. And then, if you do see a, a group of binturong in a canopy, it's a great. There's a great chance it's going to be uh, a mother with her immature immature struggles. So I learned that a baby binturong is called a struggle. However, don't quote me on that, please, anyone, because <laughs> I tried to confirm it and. The internet was like, what are you talking about, lady? So (laughs) I read that in one location, but it did stick with me because I'm like the darling name. So I don't know if anybody, if anybody's been wrong or a baby animal name expert, uh, you can let me know if that's true or not. Um, But yes, typically it's just going to be the moms with the babies or the um, male and female during breeding season. Otherwise they are solo and on their own.
0: Well, we talked about the the smell. How else do they communicate? Because that's olfactory. So, I mean, do they yeah. make noises? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, Chris. The the it's hard to get past the buttery popcorn mm. uh, smell of a, a a trail that they that they leave, but when they drag their their tail, but binturongs also make a lot of noises to uh, let the other binturong know how they feel. In fact, there's reports of snorts and chuckles when they're happy. So. I can definitely relate to that. I yeah. have been known to snort a few yeah. times when I'm really, really laughing hard, which, mm-hmm. which is makes it even funnier, right? And a Benchurong will make more of a screaming noise when they're upset. So that's me. I, I do that all the time, right? Uh, it almost sounds like a cat. And then other sounds uh, that have been re- reported with Benchurongs are grunts, hisses, loud howls. So so lots of different sounds depending on what they're trying to express to one another and what mood they're in. There are also reports of female bencherongs uh, when they are feeling romantic with a male that they'll uh, make a purring sound. Oh, okay. So I would have to go back in the literature to see if it's a traditional purr. Right, mm-hmm, we always mm-hmm. talk of that, talk about that, in the cat family that.
0: Mm-hmm. Which ones per? Yeah. Which
1: ones per? And which ones don't? And so, uh, but one of the binturongs, it's an educational animal at uh, the San Diego Zoo. Probably one that Rick Schwartz knows very well. There's reports that um, he'll make a funny snort when he's on a uh, zookeeper walks when he's found something interesting. Oh, That's so, funny. Yeah, yeah. So he's a, he's a snorter, which yeah, makes me cute. love him all that more. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, then what do we know about repro, reproduction? Some interesting not stuff there. as
1: much as I would like for the, for the repro dork in me. Um, there hasn't been a ton of research done in the wild uh, as far as uh, the mating system of binturongs, But, of course, from studying them under human care, there are some general facts about Venturon reproduction that we know. Um, it's thought that in the wild Venturon reproduction is not seasonal which means they can have births all all throughout the year. But there was a study that reported uh, an increase in births from January to March. And the researchers suggested that this could be due to uh, delayed implantation. So similar to bears, bitturongs can do this embryonic diapause or delayed implantation, um, which just to refresh your memory, means that the sperm and oocyte, fertilize and, uh, cells start to multiply. And about at the blastocyst stage, the embryonic growth just pauses and researchers don't have it all mapped out. What controls that? What controls the stopping? And then more importantly, a couple months later, what controls the start? So the, the unfreezing of the, uh, of the embryonic pause so that the cells continue to replicate and then the blastocyst will grow into an embryo and then the embryo will implant in the uterus and so on and so forth to basically perform normal gestation. So pretty cool stuff uh, that we don't know a lot about in species that we actually understand physiology in. More so, such as bears, um, and weasels, and badgers, and armadillos, and some rodent species.
0: And we just this was driving me crazy. I was like, I know we just covered a species. I think it was leopard seal, was the last one we covered that was uh, to late that you yeah, talked implantation. So yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, so some pinnipeds,
1: there, right? So it's just a really cool when we talk about convergent evolution, why some families do this and some don't. Um, but but yes, and so. There can be an uptick in births um, in January and March, uh, probably when there's more nutrients in the forest uh, and and in the canopy where the binturong lives. And in regard to binturong courtship behavior, there hasn't been a ton of research, but I was able to find a paper from 1981 uh, that describes some behaviors under human care with binturongs and just stated that the females that were when they were in estrus, that they were much more restless, much more vocal um, and would usually accept the male to come over and uh, sniff them and showing interest in the male that way prior to copulation. And then also the female binturong would sometimes pull her tail to the side um, to allow the male to sniff her anal genital region. And uh, yeah, so maybe similar to cat um, but once again, that was just one paper from a while ago. And mm-hmm. so, uh, to all you budding Binturong research experts out there, come one, come all. We need you. We need yes, you. Yes, we do. We, do. <laughs> we need to learn more about this because they're so darling. I, I mean, Chris and I love to watch horse and equid behavior for days on end. Uh,
0: Speak for yourself.
1: I know. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that.
0: Uh, I'll watch do, elephants, but uh, yeah. <laughs> just horses and equids.
1: But just- I do think bintrong behavior would be fun, except for I would. I don't know. I don't know if they do these behaviors in the canopy because that would yeah. be hard to record and see that, right? Um, do they do them on the ground? Where do they copulate? We don't know, right? I mean, here's um, the
0: thing. Here's the thing with animal behavior. It's like your herbivores are just going to be eating all day. Your carnivores are just going to be sleeping all day. So that's why I think, you know, our, our
1: Your, your behavior- primates are in the canopy, hard to see. You, you have yeah. to, like, crank your neck up. And then your ocean animals are in the ocean, so they're hard to study. Yeah. Um,
0: that's but all challenging, but it's challenging.
1: fun. And and now we have there's more technologies now. So I suppose if if I was gonna uh, conduct a big drawing study, I'd get these camera traps for sure, oh. Um, oh. and then try to figure out where their home range was, and then maybe try to do some like live cameras to figure out if they copulate in trees or on the ground. But anyways, Chris, this is just the behavior dork coming out on me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. out from me. If I had all the money and all these uh, these uh, behavior studies, I would run, and so. I I definitely felt this week that there was uh, lacking behavioral data for for the Benchurong. But the research does show that the estrus cycle of the Benchurong, when she um, does come into estrus, can be anywhere from 18 to 187 days. So once again, I think that's probably just because of lack of data uh, as far as that, that, that's a big sweeping difference in how you would manage the animal, um, both in the wild and under human care. But for now, we have an average of about 82, 82.5 days um, of estrus. Their gestation can be anywhere from 84 to almost 100 days. And that that difference, once again, is probably due to this delayed implantation. Why it's shorter sometimes, longer sometimes, we don't know the answer to that. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the female bentorong will typically give birth to a litter from one to six, but on average two. And the little baby bentorongs or the shruggles are super darling. Uh, They're only about 280 to 340 grams or 10 to 12 ounces when they're born. And they stay hidden within their mother's fur for the first couple of days while their eyes are starting to open and they're getting more developed. And they are weaned around six to eight weeks. And there has been some evidence, Chris, you're going to love this, Mm -hmm. of male benturongs providing a little bit of parental care. Okay, good, 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 good. Sometimes they stick around and sometimes they don't. So once again, I think it's just because we don't have that much data to really make a concrete, like, is it based on their age? Is it based on their experience? Is it based on living under human care or living in the wild? But there are reports of the male uh hanging out with the female after mating and then even after she's given birth. So yeah, very, very interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And both male and female um reach sexual maturity around three years of age.
0: And live to be 18 or so. Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, well, it, it, when you brought up the, the camera traps, it was interesting because diving into conservation, we don't have a population on them, but the sightings have gotten more rare and even rare with camera traps. So when you brought that up, I'm like, oh, we need more of it because we, in their ranges, we are not finding them. Now there are some confiscations in wildlife markets because these are you know sold meat, uh, pseudo medicine, or not you know what, what do we call that? Pets. Yeah, pets. The wild. Yeah, I know. I didn't want to touch that, but yeah, they don't make good pets. They're, nah, they're Not and meant
1: not to pets make. here in the states, but sometimes no. yeah. um, over in uh, overseas, Asia, Southeast Asia. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Overseas, they're not good pets. Uh, you know it. So we don't know. We just don't know. And like when you say there's only 14 in AZA accredited facilities in the United States, 11 in other facilities. I mean, we don't have an emergency population or very few to make an emergency population if they go extinct in the wild. And you have nine different subspecies. So very complicated conservation with them. But you mentioned there are groups out there fighting for benturongs.
1: Well, yes, Chris. I mean, uh, first and foremost, a huge shout out to these AZA accredited zoos, Zoo Atlanta, the San Diego Zoo. And of course, there's several that I'm not mentioning. And because of the Binturong's um, status of being vulnerable in the wild, their breeding is part of the SSP plan to make sure that the genetics... Stay as diverse as possible for those that are living under human care. So, a huge shout out to those zoos that are looking out for the benturong and trying to get people excited about them, um, understanding them, smelling them. If it's in a, a, as an educational animal at Zoo San Diego, so uh, just you know, getting people aware that this cool ancient bear, cat, monkey-like creature is out there, um, and then. Over in Europe, there is a wonderful group called ABC Conservation, and they can be found at www.abconservation.org. And the ABC Conservation focuses on the Binturong, and they have offices in Paris, France, and then Palawan, Philippines. So they do several things to help uh, promote the education and research and conservation of binturongs, and I highly recommend you check out their website. And ABC Conservation is also on Facebook. You can find them at A B Conservation Dash. Arcticus Binturong Conservation Um, to learn more about them. They have a post about Earth Day. And then um, they also made me aware, ABC Conservation made me aware that May 2nd, so shortly after this, within the next couple days of this podcast being released, is World Binturong Day. Oh, good, good. So we are just in time and we're going to celebrate it and hopefully get more people headed over to uh, abcconservation.org to check out what they're doing. But just a brief summary, ABC Conservation is doing several research uh, projects to help venture on conservation. Uh, They're learning about their ecology. They're trying to learn about their current population status uh, through camera trap studies and radio tracking methods. They work to raise awareness in the general public um, to help people understand the importance of binturongs, both worldwide and especially where they live in Southeast Asia. And a current program that they're working on is helping to renovate a program at the Palawan Wildlife Rescue and Conservation Center, where several binturong are housed. And definitely follow them on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all of those but their website is wonderful. Um, it's really fun, and it mentions all of their upcoming programs, projects, events, uh, tons of binturong information. They have games up there and educational resources. So, a huge shout out to our friends over in uh, Paris, France, and Palawan, Philippines, ABC Conservation for the binturong. You give me hope. You do great work, and I hope that our listeners out there uh, will share your information and um, help you out where they see fit. Well, I think
0: it's like, you know, besides hippos and oh, there's a couple of other species now that we've done that don't have uh, associations, you know, working on them. No, even the pygmy hippo we did not the big hippo pygmy hippo did have an organization because they are endangered, but the big ones didn't, but they still need someone looking out for them. I mean, you know,
1: absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And they do great work and, Let's, let's help them out. Go give them a like mm-hmm. on Facebook yeah. let's, and, um, and tell your friends and, uh, your feed will be filled with much more happier things than it probably is right now. I know, I know, I know. Well, if you love
0: cats or felids, I mean, I know the wrong is, is, is a distant relative, but we've done quite a few cats and we, we've a lot more to do, you know, episode 53 lions, episode 83 and 85 tigers episode 102, cheetah, 153, jaguars, 240, clouded leopards, episode 257, Eurasian lynx, episode 263, snow leopards, and then the other obscure, obscure, you Remember? Come on. You saw them in Africa with their white poop. (laughs) The baby. You took a picture of the baby coming out of the den with the mama oh this, hyenas yeah, yeah episode 34 <laughs> hyena yeah
1: it's like you were there in uh, south africa with me chris i know. i'd love, I love to next time this, you will be next time I will,
0: will be. I will i will i will hope pip and i are hoping to go next year so anyways a wonderful species uh, you know please again we we really appreciate you sharing our podcast if you haven't uh, please give us a five star review on itunes or any apps where you see us uh, you know we've really grown and we're continuing to grow build this community and and like today we are making a difference you know palm oil is becoming more sustainable and i know that's a little controversial uh, in some circles but you know it, we're making a difference you're making a difference so thank you so much for listening and being part of our community
1: thank you everyone
0: listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com